morning, everybody. I guess all the real Christians got up early. All the fake ones, I don't know where they are. Of course, Kathy ain't here either, so I, I don't say tell her I said nothing. I just left. I got in the car and left. I said, I ain't going to fight this battle. It ain't worth winning. It, it'll never win it. It ain't worth fighting it, so I just left. All right, if you got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And we lost it again, <clears throat> verses 1 through 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 2. And I promise this will be, hopefully, for the, uh, for the last time. All right, give me a second here. All righty. We having trouble? Technology. Nothing? Huh? Okay. I'll give you a second. Mm-hmm. Are you thinking about it? All right. Let's try that. And if it doesn't work, we'll move on without it. There we go. All right. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2. Uh, we're going to continue today with our lesson from last week, which is be going beyond the, the tithe. Let's read our first two verses. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now, as we've said, uh, Paul is taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. In this, these verses, we've, we've gone over this for three weeks now. He's laid out five principles. Four of those are the purpose of giving, the period of giving, the place of giving, and the participants in giving. We won't go back over those today, though we've covered those over the last uh, couple of weeks. And then t we're going to continue today with the fifth principle, which is the proportion of giving. How much are we to give? as Christians. And, and, and in this verse, Paul just gives us four words. He doesn't expand, doesn't go into a lot of detail. All he says is that you are to give as you prosper. Okay, that, that's all he says, as you prosper. Now, as we've said last week, this is a pretty clear statement that not everybody gives the same amount. Nobody expects that. Paul doesn't say everybody give a certain amount of money. He doesn't say that. Uh, he says you give as you may prosper, which is a clear statement that people give different amounts of money. We, we understand that. People that got more money, give more money. People that got less money, give less money. But the question we asked last week is, what is to control the amount of our giving? And what we found out is that our giving is to come not from some law, not from some rule, not from some regulation, but our giving is to come from our, from our heart. Now, it, it's not... And please understand this. It's not that Christians... Um, I made a statement last week that I don't live by rules anymore. I live by the Spirit of God. I, I made that statement. That doesn't mean that we don't consider rules to be unimportant. Uh, of course, rules and laws and regulations, the, the law of God, the moral law of God is important. We all understand that. But 
if you haven't figured this out now, rules and laws cannot make us good people. Have y'all figured that out yet? You can legislate, you can make laws and all this, and I'll tell you, if people aren't good, they'll just find ways around them. Yes or no? They'll, they'll, they'll observe the letter of the law, but they'll just step over the line. Just you, Laws don't make people do the right thing. That takes virtue, and virtue is something that's found on the inside of people, uh, deep within their heart. Now, this was a problem that Jesus found when he came to this earth. And there's, there's all these situations in the Bible that if you go back and read them, it's just... I couldn't help thinking about these this week. I was going to move on past this, but these kept popping up into my mind. In Matthew 15, Jesus is uh, he's, he's there, in the, I think he's in the temple, and, and some of the Pharisees, they had, a, they had a tradition that you had to wash your hands before you ate. And it had nothing to do with, with sanitary reasons. It, was just a, it had to do with almost like, it, well, i tell you what it had to do with. If they'd had, they, they might possibly have had contact with a Gentile, with a non-believer. So they would do this ritual washing that somehow or another made them clean. It was just a tradition. It wasn't called for in the law of God. It's not in the Old Testament or anything like that. They just did it. Well, they noticed that Jesus' disciples weren't doing that. So they came to him one day and said, why don't your disciples follow traditions of the elders? Why don't they do these traditions? And Jesus said this, Matthew 15, 4 through 8, He just came right back at him. He said this, Why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, he gives them an example. God says, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, Sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. And so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. There was a, there was a, a, the Bible says to honor your mother and your father, right? And what that meant to the Jews, uh, it doesn't just mean you, you honor them with your lips. It means you honor them with your livelihood. You honor them with your life. You take care of them. That's what that means. Even in their old age, you take care of them. Well, what they would do is, is instead of giving money to their parents and taking care of their parents, there were some people, for whatever reason, if they didn't want to do that, they would take that, let's say they had a grudge against their parents. What they would do is they'd take that same money, and they would vow it to God. They'd give it to the church. And the Pharisees would have said, well, if you do that, that's okay. And, and, and Jesus said, well, when you do that, you're going by tradition, but you're, you're, you're disrespecting, disavowing the very word of God when you do that. And then look what he says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but they're what? Their heart is way away from me. See, they would, they, they would, always, they would always find the loopholes. They were always looking for the cracks in the rules and that they could get, just get by or get around because their heart is, is far from him. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus said this, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, "'for you tithe, mint, and deal, and cumin.'" And you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. That, if you don't know what mint and dill and cumin are, those are herbs. They're herbs that you grow in your garden. They literally, they would go to the, to the very 
iota of the law. They would go into their garden. Remember we talked last week that he says you would tithe of the produce of the land. Remember that? Your seed and your vegetables and your apples and all of that. Well, they would literally go into their herb garden and, and, and take out 10% of the deal or 10% of their herbs or 10% of whatever. I mean, that's how far they would go. But he said the big things, justice, mercy, those kind of things, faithfulness, you completely neglect them. See how, I mean, they, again, it's the same situation. They, they, they honor him with their lips. They, they honor the word, but yet their heart is, is far from him. He encountered that situation over and over again. This, is, this was the problem, by the way, in the Old Testament with the law, that God had laid down all this law, but it couldn't make people good. It couldn't make them virtuous. That's why Ezekiel prophesied this in Ezekiel 36. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you what? A new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, God realized in the Old Testament the problem was their heart. It wasn't the law per se. It was what was inside of them. And he says, there's coming a day where I'm going to take out that heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit inside of you so you'll become a person who wants to obey, not a person who's looking for the loopholes, not a person who's looking to do the bare minimum to get by with God, but a person who wants to excel, who, to excel in, in obedience. I mean, that's the whole point of this, is making us new people. That's why Paul said, remember we read this last week, Romans 7, 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. See, the old way of the written code was I got all these rules and regulations and I'm, I'm constantly checking them. Am I doing that? Am I doing this? He says, no, I'm going to put a new spirit within you. And you're going to go through, and the spirit is going to guide you. you. You don't have to sit there with a book carrying around. Am I doing all this? The spirit's going to walk with you. The spirit's going to guide you. And you're going to be a person who just naturally begins to do those things because that's who you are. You don't do them because they're a law. You do it because that's the per type of person you are. You're a virtuous Person. That's the difference between the New Testament and the Old. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 9. When he can, when he, and, and this, by the way, the reason I bring all this up, because this, this is what giving. Giving is one of these things. You don't give because the law says give. You give because you're a giver. You've been changed into a giver. That's just who you are. You're like God. Look at, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as the law says he should give. Is that what it says? Each one must give as the, as the law... No, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. That is what's to control our giving. And again, as Christians, we're not people who just barely gets by. We're not people who are inclined to just do the minimum. No, as Christians, we want to excel in all things that we do which includes our giving. So we said last week as Christians, we are to be motivated by our heart, not by some law or rule or regulation. Now, 
The question becomes, well, listen, if, if, if I'm a new Christian and I've got to start giving, I want to start giving, where do I start? Do I give, you know, do I just give $20? Do I give $100? Do I, I mean, is there some, where do I start? And, and I said last week, I'm glad you asked me that. I'm going to give you today seven reasons. And, and as I look around the room here, there's probably two types of people in this room. The first people is people who are hopefully moving toward tithing. You're moving toward the 10%. That, maybe that's something you hadn't been doing, but you're thinking about it or you want to start doing. I want to give you seven reasons why you should do that. On the other hand, there are people in this room who have been tithing regularly for a long time. I want to give you seven reasons why you should move beyond that. As I said last week, if the, old, if the law of sin and death, the standard in the Old Testament was 10%, how is it that we as Christians can't do better? Why would we not go beyond that? Why would our heart not push us to do, to do more? So I want to give you seven reasons, if you're not tithing, to move to the tithe as a starting point. But if you're already tithing, I want to give you seven reasons to go beyond that 10%. Number one. Tithing, uh, and these are, I'm going to make you think a little bit today. I'm going to give you some reasons maybe you've never thought about. You know, I could stand here and say God's going to bless you and all that, and we've, we've heard all that, but I want to give you seven reasons maybe. Some of them are, you're going to hear about, but some maybe you haven't. Number one, tithing honors an Old Testament principle. Now, you'll recall from last week's lesson that what we said. You remember there were 12 tribes of Israel and, and God set aside one, side, one tribe uh, uh, called the tribe of the Levites, and they were the ministers in the temple. They were the ones when the, when the temple was called a tabernacle or the tent of meeting, they would take it down, they would put it up, they would carry the Ark of the Covenant, they would, they would handle all the, the sacred elements and do all that kind of stuff. That's, that, was their, that was their job. And God set aside the tithe in the Old Testament to take care of them because they weren't shepherds and blacksmiths. They didn't have any other way to put food on the table. And so God instituted the tithe. We saw that in Numbers 18.21. To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for the service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. So God said, okay, all the rest of you 11 tribes, you're going to set aside 10% of your produce from your land, 10% of your animals, and you're going to give it to the Levites, and that's going to be their inheritance. That's going to take care of them. And when we tithe today... In the New Testament church, we are honoring that very same principle. Um, just like today, there are people in the church who are not called to be bankers. They're not called to be plumbers. They're not called to be teachers or welders. They're called to be ministers. Maybe they're pastors or maybe they're missionaries. Maybe they're ministry assistants of some types or associate pastors, whatever. But they are called to do the work of the Lord, not do what we would consider regular or normal jobs. And the rest of God's people, just as in the Old Testament, are to be gainfully employed and then support those ministers and support the cost of the ministry. Now, in the Old Testament, God ordained that this was to be done by a giving of tithe or a giving of, of the tenth. Now, you may say, well, is there any scripture in the New Testament that says we should follow that same model? Should we follow that same principle in, in case? Well, absolutely there is. We studied it a few weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 9, 
9 through 14. Paul's writing to the church, he says this, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? Of course it was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And this, remember, this is Paul. He's, a, he's an apostle. He's a minister. He's writing. He says this, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Do you not know that those who... Now, watch what he's going to do. He's going to refer to the Old Testament. He's going back. He's looking at the Old Testament. He says this, Do you not know that those who are employed in temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So what Paul's doing here is he's looking back at the Old Testament and saying there's the principle God set up. That those who work in the temple, those who serve the Lord in spiritual matters, are to be taken care of by, by those who just have what we would call maybe regular jobs. Okay? So there's the same principle. So at the very least, Paul is drawing attention in that New Testament passage to how it was done in the Old Testament. And in doing so, he's laying down a principle that we are to follow in the, in the New Testament. Number two, second reason we should move toward the tithe and for those of us that are tithing, move beyond it. It honors God as our creator and our provider. When we release a tenth of our income and we give it to God, we give it over to ministry, we give it over to the mission of Christ in the world, we are honoring the creator who owns everything, including all of our income. We are saying, Lord, I honor you by giving you this. Now, you may say to me, well, Derek... Why, do we, why should we only treat a tenth of our income as belonging to God? Isn't everything God's? Isn't all my money God's? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. Psalms 24.1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. That's exactly true. Everything you have belongs to God. If you make 10000 a year or you make a million dollars a year, Either way, that all belongs to God. So here's the question. Why do we set aside just a piece of it? Why do we set aside just 10% of it and give to Him? Okay. Well, I want to, I want to point something out. Yes, it's all God's. In fact, that's why last week, you'll notice in our lesson, we focused on the heart, not on the number. The, the giving, because it's all His, right? I mean, that's why our giving should honor Him, come back to Him as Creator and Provider. And, and as we said last week, it's not just the 10% you give that's important, or the 15 or whatever you do. What's in, actually, every cent you have is important. What you do with every cent is, is absolutely true, uh, important, because what you do with it and how you spend it says a lot about your view of God and your place in, in this eternal plan. What you do with all your money says something about what your value... Would we agree with that? How you spend your money says a lot about what your values are in this life. In fact, it says a lot about what, your year, what you really think your years on earth should be spent for. Now, that's all true. All of your money is important. How you spend all of your money is important. But I want to point something out this morning I don't think we maybe think about a lot. 
Let me ask you a question. What would you think about a husband who his wife comes to him and says, uh, you're not, honey, you're not spending enough time with me. <clears throat> you, you, you're working all the time. When you're, when you're not working, you're, you're playing golf or you're fishing, you're doing your hobbies, and you and I, you, you just don't spend any time with me. And he comes back to her and he says, what are you talking about, woman? All of my time is yours. All this work I'm doing, all the time I spend working and making money, that's all for you. It's all for the kids. All of my time is yours. Now, what would you say about a husband like that who says that, but yet he doesn't set aside any special time for her? What would you think about that? Do you think he's, it's really true, what he's saying? You see, the fact is that statement that all of my time is yours has a very hollow ring to it if that husband doesn't set aside at least some special time for her. Does that make sense? You see, spending special time with her doesn't mean that the, that the other time is not hers. It proves what he's saying. It proves that it all really is hers. Does that make sense? Think about it this way. God declares one day to be his, does he not? He says, set aside that one day. Yes or no? Now, are all days his? Sure they are. See, we know that. We understand they're all his. But you're here today on a Sunday. A lot of people aren't. A lot of people go down the road. People are going fishing. They're going golfing. They're going shopping. They're going doing all their things. But you set aside one day, one out of seven, to come to the Lord's house, to fellowship with God's people. Does that mean that Sunday is his and the other six are yours? No. When you set aside the one day, what you're doing is you're proving that you really do believe that they're all His. Make sense? See, the people that are in church today and are doing this on a regular basis are saying, Lord, I believe it's all Yours, therefore I will set aside a piece of it just for You. Listen, money is exactly the same. When you give God 10% of your income, you're not saying the other 90 is mine. What you're doing is when you set aside 10%, you're saying, you know what, I really do believe that it's all God's. Therefore, I'm going to set aside this special to honor Him as Creator and Provider. When you write that tithe check, and, I, and by the way, I'm a big believer, you do it first. You do that first. It comes right off the top. You do it first. Because when you do that, it's like putting a seal over your bank account that says God's. It's all His. So again, I want you to understand, giving 10% doesn't mean the other 90 is yours. It's just proving that you really do believe that it's all His. And you prove that by, by honoring Him right off the top. Number three, the third reason for, for moving to the tithe and beyond, it's an antidote to the love of money. Giving the tithe and going beyond the tithe, and listen to me closely, is an antidote for the love of money. Hebrews 13.5 says this. Now listen to this. This is a command, by the way. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. You see that word keep? That don't mean you do it what? One time. That means on a regular basis, that's a battle that you have to fight. Keep, your, keep it that way. Keep your life free from love of money. Just, in other words, just because you don't really love money today may not mean a year from now that hadn't changed. Keep it, 
Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. We are to fight that in our life. We are to fight the love of money. Now, here's a question. How are you to do that? How do you fight the love of money? Well, I can tell you one way. Every time you give a tithe, and, I, and you don't have to, to raise your hand or anything here, but I can tell you here, when you start giving, or maybe some of you have been giving for a while, but when every time you write a check, especially a tithe check of 10%, there's a thought passes through your head of what you could have done with that money. Boy, if I had that 10%, I could buy that new truck. I could make that payment. I could do this. I could do that. And let me tell you, I want to put that in a different spin. That struggle, that question, that, that is incredibly important for you to maintain that in your life. You see, God doesn't give us a command to fight greed without turning around and giving us weapons to fight it. And one of the weapons that he gives us to fight greed and covetousness in our life is the gift of giving. You see, when you you got money and you got a decision to make, I could keep this money and use it for me or I can give this to God and let him use it for his ministry. Which one am I going to do? Can I, do I keep it for myself? Or do I, do I give it away? One of the ways you fight the love of money in your life is by giving. That's a weapon. You see, when we give of our tithe on a regular basis, it is a test of what's in our heart. Do I, what's more important to me, the advancement of his ministry or 10% more fun? What's more important, God and his work in this world or 10% more security? Every time you tithe, you're asking yourself that question. And when you choose Him, you're saying, I trust you, God. I, I put, I put my, I, I'm, I'm in with you. I'm throwing in with you, not this world. I mean, it is incredibly important. It's not just about giving your money. Yeah, you know, the church light bill gets paid and toilet paper gets put on the rolls and, and, and we, we get all that. But every time you do it, you're saying, I choose you, God. I choose you. And that is incredibly important as an antidote to the love of money. Number four, the fourth reason for moving toward the tithe and beyond, it's a governor on spending. Now, some of you may not know what a governor is. Years ago, I, I, my first job when I was 16, I worked down at Pigott's Cash and Carry. Everybody remember Pigott's down here before, uh, years ago? And uh, we would make deliveries. And we were all a bunch of young guys, we were 16, 17, 18, so... Uh, Mr. Pigott put a governor on the trucks. If you don't know what a governor is, that's something they put on the... I don't know how they do it, but they put it on. So I don't care how hard you press that, that accelerator, it'll go 55. That's all it'll go is 55. And we would, we'd press that accelerator and we'd come back and say, man, there's something wrong with these trucks. They just won't go. So they did that on purpose. They put a governor. Well, see, tithing is a governor on spending. Would you agree that there's an almost universal rule in this world? I, I won't say it's for everybody, but it's, it's true for most people that your spending will expand to fill your income. Yay or nay? Your, your spending tends to expand to fill what you, what you make. You have less, you spend less. You have more, you spend more. Kathy and I, uh, pay, she, just, she was here, she just walked out, so I can tell you this. Um, Last year, we, we, we paid our house off, you know, and, and her first, as soon as we did it, she said, 
Well, well, now I can get this and that and this and that and this. Well, she's not a bad person, right? It's just, that's just natural. When you have extra money, what's the first thought that comes in your mind? What can I buy with this money? What can I get with this money? See, that's just the way it works. You have more, you spend more. You have less, you spend less. If you make more, you buy more. And by the way, the things you buy have to be stored. They have to be repaired. It, it never, it, it continually astounds me that you can drive down the road and we build these warehouses to store our stuff in. Isn't that the craziest thing you've ever seen? I mean, it's big storage centers. People just store their stuff because they ain't got enough room to, to, to put it in. Spending begets spending. But if you have less at your disposal, you will spend less. And most of the time, you don't even think about it. Let me, let me ask you a question. How many of you have spent very much time this month thinking about buying a $100,000 car? Anybody? See, me neither. I've always liked this, those, uh, what do you call those cars, those Range Rovers? Everybody seen a Range Rover? I've always loved those. You know, I thought, man, that is a cool-looking car. But I can tell you, I ain't spent any time this month thinking about buying a Range Rover because they're over $100,000. And the reason I don't spend time thinking about it is because it's out of my league. I, I mean, I, why would I waste time thinking about that, trying to figure out ways to get it? Because it's completely out of my league, so I don't even think about it. But I can tell you this, if all of a sudden I got this big raise and I start making two or $300,000 a year, pretty soon cars like that wouldn't seem like such an odd thing, would it? All of a sudden, instead of buying a $20,000 car, you're buying a $100,000 car. Why? Because you got more money, because you can afford them. See, the more money you get, you just tend, everything just kind of raises up. You just buy more expensive things. You buy more stuff. You build bigger barns. See, here's the question. As Christians, how do we restrain ourselves from being just like the world? How do we keep ourselves from filling up our barns and buying more stuff and building bigger? How do we keep ourselves from being just like unbelievers? How do we restrain ourselves from, from looking to the world like we have the exact same values that they do? Because it's a temptation. How do you do that? Well, I'm going to tell you. The answer is, as our income grows, we move beyond the 10%. We give more. Listen, you give more away, you got less to spend. You don't have to worry about those $100,000 cars. You just give it away. You see, we as, as tithers, for those of you here that have been tithing a long time, we can resolve to give a greater percentage of our income to advance the kingdom. That puts the brakes on our natural tendencies toward luxury, to buy bigger and better things. Just give it more of it away so you don't have that, uh, you don't have spendable income. John Wesley, I ran across this story a couple weeks ago. I was telling Uncle Dallas about it last week. John Wesley, if y'all don't know, was one of the uh, great evangelists. Uh, he lived in the 1700s. He was born in 1703. Most of you may know him as the, as the founder of the Methodist Church. And when he was 28 years old, he made a decision. And he decided, I want to give more money to the poor. Just made a decision. Now, here's the great thing. Most people, most humans, this is what we would do. If you made a decision today, I want to give more money away, we'd start praying, Lord, give me more money to give away. Right? If you give me more money, God, I'll give it away. John Wesley didn't do that. 
John Wesley said, okay, I'm going to limit my spending. I'm going I'm to limit my expenses so I'll have more money to give away. So in the first year, he, he lives in England, so they use pounds instead of dollars. In his first year, he made 30 pounds. And I don't know if that's a little or a lot. I got no idea. And he found his expenses, after he paid all of his bills, he, 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 could, he could live on 28 pounds. So that first year, he gave away 2 pounds. In the second year, his income doubled to 60 pounds, somewhat. But he still lived on 28, and he was able to give 32 pounds away the very next year. Actually gave away more than he, than he spent. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds, and he, he, he paid the same bills. He didn't buy a bigger horse or a better horse or whatever they had back then. He didn't buy more fine china. He gave away 62 pounds. He kept his expenses exactly the same. In his life, he, his income would advance over... He, he died when he was 87. His income advanced to as high as 1,400 pounds a year, but he never, his expenses never went over 30. I mean, he just said, this is the way I'm going to do it. And he just kept his expenses right where they were, and he gave away all that money. In fact, in the 1776, he was investigated by the English Tax Commission, which is the equivalent of the IRS, because they thought he wasn't paying enough taxes. Now, this is, this is interesting. Back then, you didn't, pay income, you, don't pay, they, you didn't pay tax on your income like they have today. We have an income tax. They know how much you make, and they take it out. Back then, they didn't do that. You paid taxes on other things. For example, several years ago, Kathy and I were up in Savannah, and... We took one of those home tours. You know what I'm talking about, where you actually hire somebody and they take you around. And we went in this big house on a, on a, on a corner block of a street, an old house probably built in the 1700s. And, and uh, uh, we would go in this house, and, and the, the tour guide asked us a couple questions. He said, did you notice that they don't have very many windows facing the street? And I, I looked, and sure enough, there was like two windows facing the street, but the back of the house, was there was like 20. I mean, it was just full of windows. And he said, did you also notice that there's no closets? That everybody just put their clothes in either armoires or those chests that sit at the end of your bed, but there was no closets. And I thought, well, you're right, there's no closets. And he said, do you want to know why? Because in that day, they taxed you on the number of windows you had facing the street, and they taxed you not on the size of your house, but the number of rooms. And if you build a closet, that was considered a room. So people wouldn't build closet. They'd just stick an armoire up there and put clothes in it. That's why they didn't have closets, because you got taxed on that. So you got taxed on things like that. You also got taxed on your gold spoons and things like that, or silver spoons, but you didn't get taxed on your income. So they thought, man, this guy, we all know who he is. We, 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 you know, we got a general idea of how much money he's making. He's not paying any taxes. And so they actually investigated him, thought he had some silver spoons hidden somewhere. But see, the thing was, he was just giving it all away. When he died in 1791 at the age of 87, the only money mentioned in his will was the coins that was to be found in his pocket and, and around the dressers of his house. He had made, they, they estimate that the vast majority of the 30,000 pounds he made in his lifetime, he just gave it away. He lived when he was 87. He lived like he did when he was 28. He never... Man, that's, that's a man with a different perspective. 
See, his income kept going up. And how did he, how did he restrain himself by buying bigger and better things? Just gave it away. He said this. I, I was telling Uncle Dallas about this. This is awesome. He made this statement. He said, I cannot help. He had a big library of books. He said, I cannot help leaving my books behind me whenever God calls me hence. But in every other respect, I was the executor of my own will. I love that. You know, when you die, you leave a bunch of money, there's an executor that gives it all away. He said, I was the executor of my own will. I gave my own money away. I decided how to do that. I didn't let somebody else do it. That, that is a man with a different perspective. Number five, fifth reason to move to the tithe and beyond. It's God's way of providing for good works. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. Let's read this one more time. Paul says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Don't When you read that, Paul says, you give. And, it'll, and you, you sow bountifully, you give bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. But Paul's saying the whole point is so that you'll have enough to abound in every good work. It is the way that God supplies the church with what it needs to do good works. Again, don't miss what Paul's saying there. He says that when you sow bountifully and you sow cheerfully, you'll have enough to do good deeds. See, the goal here in the Bible is to use this excess money for good works. Why? Because good works are the things that makes your light shine. Good works are the things that cause people to glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what Paul, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5. Let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. I, again, guys, you don't think this is a big deal? Listen, one of the reasons that Jesus died for you, one of the reasons he died for you is so that you would do good works. Titus 2.14, Paul's writing to Titus said this, talking about Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness or sin and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, 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 passionate for good works. See, if you lay up treasures on earth, can I just tell you, you're just like everybody else. People look at you and they have no reason to think that your Father in heaven is glorious. They look at you and think, well, they, that guy, he goes to church, but he loves everything that I love. He does everything I do. He's got the same values that I do. What does that say about the God he worships? Not very much. But if they can look at you and, I, and you're living your life with a perspective on heaven and you're giving that money, it's like your money's like, man, this, this doesn't belong to me. This is temporary stuff. This means nothing to me. See, they, then that turns their attention and say, man, that God he serves must be something, must be glorious. See, when we deny ourselves temporary comforts and pleasures and fun because our eye is on eternity, you are saying something loud and profound with your money. What you're saying is God is my portion. God is my treasure. God, I, I choose him. I mean, that, you're making a statement. How you spend your money matters. It's important because you're saying something about the God you serve. 
Paul says excess money is given to us so that we can show where our treasure is by giving it away. Let me say that again. Excess money is given to us so that we can show where our treasure is by turning it around and giving it away. So the fifth reason for going to the tithe and beyond is that this is God's way of providing for good deeds. Number six and seven, I'm going to go real fast. Number six, it's God's way of providing for you. Giving in a regular, disciplined, generous manner, whether you give 10% or you give 20 or 30 or 40, it's simply a good investment in view of the many promises of God. Malachi 3.10, I'll give you Old Testament new. Malachi, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I won't open for you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing for you until it overflows. And you may say, well, that's Old Testament, Derek. How about this? Jesus put it this way. Give, and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. These are the words of Jesus. For with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. With the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. If you measure out the minimum, you'll get the minimum. You go beyond bountifully, overflowing, it'll be given back to you. Those are the words of Jesus. That's his promise. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-11. We've already read this twice. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. I was thinking we went over to Kathy's daddy's house and we planted 100, don't ask me why, but we planted 150 pounds of seed potatoes. Now, that is a whole lot of seed potatoes. Can I tell you, though, we're going to reap what? We're going to reap a lot of seed potatoes. Right? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna reap them. Okay? It's just, it's just a law. It's been laid down from the beginning. You sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. You sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. Look what Paul goes on and says this. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Those are all amazing challenges from Scripture. You, listen, you think you can't afford... There's people here who's been tithing 10%. You think you can't afford to go beyond it? Let me tell you something. God says, try me. Test me. You, you want to get by on the minimum? That's, that's your business. But you want to go beyond? Test me, and see what I'll, test me and see what I'll do. And what we'll find is when we test Him is you can't afford not to tithe. You can't afford not to go beyond the timber. Let me tell you something. Everybody in this world is looking for a surefire investment. Let me tell you, there's one. There's one surefire investment. Jesus said, the measure you measure out, I'll measure it back to you. That's about as surefire as it gets. Why do I say that surefire? Because listen to the words in Numbers 23.19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man, that he should change his mind? Has he said and he will not do it, or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? Let me remind you once again, that is, this is not at all about getting rich. Everything I've said here today it has nothing to do with getting rich. If you hear the scriptures and you think, holy cow, if I give a lot to God, he's going to give a lot to me. I might be able to buy that car. I've got to tell you, something's wrong with your heart. Something's wrong with your heart. There's just the Bible is very, very clear about that. The Bible says he'll give to us so that we can turn around and do what? 
and give it away. What, what, what God is looking for is a funnel. He's looking for somebody that cares so little about money that he can just pour it into you so you just turn around and pour it into other people. He just wants a funnel. Just a funnel. And he can find that, and the, and, the, and, the, and the better your heart gets and the more that like Jesus you get, the, I mean, it's just like the hole just gets, that funnel hole just gets bigger and bigger. He just pours it, pours it on through. What these scriptures are is a 100% guarantee that you will always, if, if you give to God regularly and generously, there is a 100% guarantee that you will always have two things. Number one, you will always have an abundance for every good work, and you will always have sufficiency for yourself. That's the, that's the promise right there. You will always have an abundance. And the, I like that word, do you not? Abundance. Does anybody know what that word means? It means more than enough. More than enough. And you'll always have sufficiency for yourself. Number seven, I'll go over this real quick. It proves and strengthens our faith in the promises of God. There is an absolute correlation between faith and the promises of God and a peace of mind that allows us to give away what we think we need, but we really don't. Hebrews 13, 5, remember what it said? Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And then he gives us a reason. Because Jesus has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Every time that you doubt that you can live on 90% or 80% or 70% of your income, you need to go to the Word of God and let the promises of God strengthen your faith. For example, Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your need according to His riches in Christ Jesus. In the end, moving toward the tithe and beyond, it always boils down to one thing, and that's faith. It always boils down to a faith issue. Jesus has said he'll never leave you or forsake you. He has said he will supply all your needs. He has said you are more valuable than the birds of the air. And they don't toil and, and worry and do all that kind of stuff. He said, won't I take care of you? See, in the end, here's the question. Do you really believe that he will do what he said he'll do? Do you really believe what the Bible says is true. And do you trust him to do it?